Hello and welcome to the XXLA Architects Podcast, a show featuring Los Angeles's leading women in architecture and issues relevant to the profession. I'm your host, Audrey Sato. Today's episode features Mina Chow, architect and professor at the USC School of Architecture. Mina is also the star, producer, and director of the documentary film Face of a Nation, What Happened to the World's Fair? There are two screenings of the film coming up this month in March, one in Baltimore on the 12th and another in Los Angeles on the 20th. Now, without further ado, please enjoy the episode. Tell me about how um, how you got into architecture and then specifically how you started getting into film. So like a lot of architects and architects that have been around for a while, sometimes we forget how we got into what we do. I had been practicing for a while and something came up that reminded me and it's related to the movie. So when I was 12 years old, my dad and my mom showed me their pictures at the 1964 New York World's Fair. And the images were so incredible and inspiring that I decided to think about architecture for the first time. It was my first awareness that there was this incredibly inspiring expression of, of hope. And I saw that in the buildings that they were surrounded by in the photographs that they were in. Yeah, I saw some of those photographs in your film. Um, but they- at, the, at the time I started the movie, all of this was completely not on any part of my radar. I totally didn't remember anything about this. It was making the movie that actually started it. About 10 or 12 years ago, I'd been teaching at USC for like three years, and I decided that I needed to figure out who I was, and I also needed to define myself differently from everyone else. So I started by thinking about exploring something I'd always been interested in, which is filmmaking. When I was in graduate school at Harvard Graduate School of Design, they wouldn't let me take any computer classes. What do you mean? <laughs> I was a computer nerd, so um, that you know what you want for your students is to build up their weaknesses, right? So I had to hand draw everything, but I also had to fill my schedule up with other classes. So I looked on the curriculum and I saw that they had some film classes, and I tried to take Spike Lee's class, but they wouldn't let me in. Oh no. <laughs> Because Spike Lee's class was reserved for visual and environmental studies students. So I looked around and I saw, well, hey, there's this class about women in film. It covered a lot of the historic background about women authorship as directors and producers. You know, flash forward to 2006, I think it was. And I thought, well, here I am. I teach at USC School of Architecture why don't I go check out the film school? (laughs) And it was the time period in which uh, the president and the provost of the university were encouraging faculty to explore interdisciplinary realms. And I thought, well, I've always wanted to do that. So I reached out to two film faculty from the cinema school, and I talked to both of them, but one of them I spent three and a half hours meeting with. And we decided to start by collaborating on some projects together because he was interested in architecture and I was interested in film. He was really good with story. He was one of the editors for Sophie's Choice and he edited Heather's. So he started teaching me film story 
But before we started really delving into film story, we had to learn. I had to learn how to how to do everything. Like how do you do? <laughs> how do you hold a camera? What are you shooting? What are the techniques? I didn't know how to do any of this. But I just started by hanging out with them. And the first thing we did was um, a short. Well, we we didn't. I never finished it. But it was a project where we went to Washington D.C. It was also this time period where I learned that I had a really great talent for fundraising. <laughs> and I raised enough money to bring him and another uh, professor with me to Washington, D.C. to shoot the solar decathlon at the mall, at the Washington, D.C. mall. But I didn't know what I was doing. And, <laughs> um, and one thing I have to backtrack about is that right after I graduated from Harvard, I actually became a professional actor. Oh. So most people don't know this about me, but I starred in a horror movie. <laughs> Why I did this was because it was relatively easy for me to do this because there were not that many Asians uh, oh. being represented in Washington, D.C. to be like principals or like acting in commercials and stuff. So I actually got, I got booked relatively easily. I made a third of my income from my acting jobs. No way. From commercials and That's stuff. That's amazing. So I had this experience being on camera. Uh, one thing I also haven't mentioned is I'm also trained as a professional actor. Um, <laughs> I started that in grade school, starring in school plays in elementary school, high school. I started out double majoring at in my undergraduate degree in architecture and dramatic arts. But then Harvard, I started learning how to f do filmmaking. And then I started learning how to make films at USC. And then... From the point we did the solar decathlon, we were also asked by AIA National to do a couple of small, short webcasts. So I did one during the middle of the recession called Be Happy, which I worked on with the cinema school faculty. And from there, I started doing more and more collaborations with him. And he started the feature film, Face of a Nation, What Happened to the World's Fair. He is an editor, and yet he's also a cameraman. <laughs> <laughs> He ended up coming with me to China to start the movie, and I learned so much from him. So that's how the film began. Wow. Mm -hmm. I love that you had this other passion and talent that, you know, it it actually, to me, seems really related to architecture in a way, because both are storytelling um, mediums, and then also relate a lot to the human body and how someone behaves in space. Yeah, I'm, I want to address the story issue, actually, okay, because sure. the story part, I think, needs to be worked on by our profession, because I don't think we necessarily understand how important story is to get the ideas and the concepts across. How do you tell a story to a client or an audience using architecture? I don't know if we necessarily teach our students to do it as well. But one of the things that I learned in film, like my producer taught me this, he said, people watch movies to watch people, not <laughs> to watch architecture. What he meant by that was that we had to make sure that the film was about something bigger and deeper and more universal than just the building. Because if you think about architects, we ourselves design buildings for people, just like a filmmaker is crafting a story and crafting a work of art or an expression of some sort for people to consume. So I think story, we're trying to teach our students in architecture how to be clear in your story. Like the way I was taught was, you know, we have an idea, we have concepts, and you have partee, and, 
and things like that. But learning how to express that in a way that is incredibly powerful and connects to people that are not architects, to me, that's why I learned the power of story. And one of the things I had to learn in the filmmaking process was really understanding what the story was. Just like you're stripping away at any sort of extraneous ideas about a concept right, right. or your inte- your design intent, you have to strip away all the other things that don't have anything to do with the story in the film so that it's very clear when an audience watches your movie, they know what your intention is. That makes me think about, there was one review of your film that said something about tenderness. There's a tenderness in the film. And I truly felt that was a great description because you brought so much of your authentic self, like your family and your experience and oh boy. into it. <laughs> and I, I remember hearing you say that um, at the beginning that you weren't intending to put yourself in the film. So I have this real problem. Some of this is being a woman and some of this also crosses into being an Asian woman who is taught traditional values, not putting yourself out there, not sticking up. Some of it is also being a filmmaker and a director who doesn't necessarily want your own catharsis to be in the movie. And also a director, a really good director recognizes that it doesn't matter. A part of the director is going to always be in the movie. So why put the director in the movie? Sure. So when we started the movie in 2010, we were going to China to film at the World's Fair. The film was never intended to be an hour film. It was always supposed to be a 10-minute movie. <laughs> that was all I raised the money for. <laughs> okay. Um, it turned out to be much bigger than that because what I ended up filming instead obviously resonated with me is that I would pursue it for seven years until I figured out what was going on. But when I started the film, I flew with the cinema school faculty. His name is Norm Holland, and he's a full professor at the USC School of Cinematic Arts. And he said to me when we were on the plane, let's not put the director in the movie and let's not do any voiceover. And I was like all hell-bent to make sure that we didn't do that because I wanted to be a good director. Actually, at the time, I wasn't even planning on being the director. I just wanted to do a fun project with my (laughs) cool friends. So we were actually flying to China to do a cool short movie. I had no, you know, intention to be in it. And then what we ended up filming instead devastated me so much that it turned into something much bigger, much more expensive, much more, way more time to to make sure that it was told the right way. So it was a big struggle. And and then in the fourth year of making the film, I had to break those rules <laughs> because I would either have to raise a half a million dollars more money, according to the my experts who told me that I would have to do that. And I would have to spend another five years making the movie oh, if I wanted not the, the director not to be in the movie. So I gave in at that point. And I didn't realize what I was setting myself up for when I said, okay, I will do the voiceover and I will investigate how my connection to world fairs is so personal and why I care so much. At the time, I just decided to do it. I didn't realize how difficult it was going to be. I imagine it was personally difficult to just delve that much into, you know, who you are and and expose all of that. So some of that also required that I be honest with myself about who I am and what I'm not good at and what I need to work on. So being in the ivory tower teaching architecture 
you kind of get a reputation for being elitist. And I had to think about, well, what is it about myself that is not connecting to people outside the profession? Because the whole reason why I decided to make movies, which I didn't mention in in our interview yet, is I just felt like a lot of what I was doing and what I cared about in architecture just didn't connect to people. And I wanted to figure out a way that I could connect what I cared about to people that were outside the profession. So what I started by doing was to question some of the things that I had been in some ways disrespecting. So this is really hard on me to think about it because my mom's gone. But what happened was when I was growing up, I felt like I was investigating the intellectual side of me, because which is more like my dad. And I was actually not spending enough time on the part that is emotional, which is my mother. She would like to watch Chinese soap operas. My sisters like to watch soap operas. This is in junior high. And around this time period, I actually stopped watching television in junior high. I haven't really watched that much television. You know, the reason why I stopped watching television was because I felt like it was low culture and I felt like I wasn't spending enough time on the, you know, the intellectual stuff. So I ended up spending all my time on the intellectual stuff and in some ways fulfilled some of the goals that I wanted. But I felt like there was this rift that what I was interested in in architecture did not connect to people, including my own family. So I started investigating soap operas. One of the big things I learned was that you have to have enough time with a character in order to feel something with the character. Uh, The other thing that I learned, and I also learned this in my dramatic arts background, was that in order to feel something for the character, you want to ensure that the story that is portrayed shows the character in more than just one dimension. So if you have a strong character, you also want to show parts of this person that might not be so strong. You have a lot of different schools of thoughts on how you do a narrative. But one way you can think about it is that you have a protagonist and you have obstacles. And so you have to think about what is who is the protagonist and what are the obstacles. Mm-hmm. So I started thinking about the, the stuff that I had filmed already and... I originally had the hero in our film as the protagonist, and he in some way still is. But one of the problems I faced with him was that he didn't want me to film him in any vulnerable situation. So he came across as being very, very strong, but you couldn't necessarily empathize with him so that you can understand why he was so strong. Mm-hmm. Is this Jack? Yeah, this is Jack. I had some very good writers that I worked with, and they he and I crafted these questions that would push buttons. And (laughs) so when we were asking Jack some of these questions, we would anticipate getting some emotional response. We got some emotional response, but he ended up yelling at me. (laughs) And he ended up threatening not to be in the movie. Oh, my gosh. And when that happened, I decided to back off a little bit and go back to square one and figure out another way. So um, when we backtracked, that's when we decided, okay, well, I'm tired. I can't raise another half a million dollars. <laughs> and I don't have another five years to work on this because I might die before <laughs> that happens. And I'm so happy that I ended up doing it this way, even though I don't feel like the film is as strong as I could do it today, learning the lessons I've learned. Um, because Jack did ultimately die before I finished the movie. So what I did was I had to dig into my own soul and my own background to kind of dig into the 
emotional stuff, the stuff that, you know, we all bury deep that we don't want to yeah. visit. <laughs> that's what I had to do. And that was really hard. And, and then, so going through that was hard. Now imagine you digging open your wounds and pulling up scabs. But then as the film director, you don't want any of that to work its way into the movie because people will roll their eyes. You don't want to have your own catharsis in the movie because that's your catharsis. It has nothing to do with what you want the audience to experience. Uh huh. You know, it's like going through therapy. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but then not letting any of your therapy to be absorbed. You had to like really quickly figure out the stuff that just was your baggage and then bring enough emotion in so that the audience could feel something. Yeah. No, I definitely thought it was well edited in that way. Like I thought it was enough to give me as a viewer like an investment into, yeah, okay, like I see this big problem from a personal level, but I also see a, a big problem from like a, it's a big problem kind of level too. Well, I'm really glad you got that because that's exactly the dilemma we were trying to figure out. Because the whole point that I stepped in the first place was I wanted people to care about the bigger issue. Right. And I think it made it more powerful too, to like discover that experience of the, the Shanghai World Expo from your eyes knowing where you came from with uh, like the sort of expectations you might have of the U.S. you know, pavilion and then going there and finding this disgrace, you know? So you never really want to tell your story. And so I made the mistake, if you notice, there's a lot of these expert interviews in the movie. And that's that was my misconception of what makes a good documentary. I thought documentaries were issue-based, which they are, but they still need to tell a good story. And the way to tell a story is to allow the audience be immersed in the film experience. And what that means is it's not so much about telling it, it's about getting the audience to experience what, what the character experienced. So in some parts of the film, you will feel like you're experiencing it yourself. And you, you use techniques like cinema verite, where you take a camera and there's this thing called fly on the wall where you try to be the the objective observer and and you don't try to insert your own opinion in. So we did that in some parts of the the film, especially in the Shanghai World Expo, maybe because I had really good filmmakers with me when I came. <laughs> but then um, the expert interviews, it's me doing all the interviews. Sure. I was interviewing a lot of them. And um, it was kind of difficult trying to figure out what's the balance of immersive experience and not giving away too much and not telling the audience what to feel. So hopefully it was enough. <laughs> I mean, it's I would do it again so much better the next time because I've learned so much from making this movie. But isn't yeah. that everything, like with architecture, with filmmaking, I mean, with anything? It's like always a work in progress. We're all works in progress. Our representation at the Shanghai World Expo it was so disgraceful, I, I felt. And in some ways, do you feel like it is showcasing a reality of the U.S., even though it's like the darkest reality I think we could portray? For me, it was unfortunate because I'd been wearing rose-colored glasses for so long. And I think that had to do with being a child of immigrants growing up, hearing how wonderful this country was and how lucky I was to be born here. And yet when I talk to people, when I'm telling them about the movie, 
A lot of Americans say, oh, yeah, they already know about this. They agree with the erosion of America's image. I have to mention there was a book that I used when I was trying to find a way of expressing this. John Steinbeck's The Winter of Our Discontent was something that I carried with me because it was about the lessening of American standards. And I also read um, Jane Smiley's A Thousand Acres. And the reason why I reread some of these classics was because I wanted to see how they were able to convey some of these feelings. I started researching The Ugly American. Where did that come about? And for me, it was about when I saw, you know, I had to think about, well, how did I react when I saw the awful fiasco in Shanghai? And it was all about the commercialization and that it seemed like everyone, that the country had been going in the wrong direction. So I had to like really isolate exactly how that could be shown in a movie and how much of it could be shown because, you know, obviously these are bigger issues. Right. So figuring out, well, okay, it's about, let's, okay, well, what did we used to show? And that's when I investigated Jack's story. And why architecture was so effective to tell the story was because without using any words, you can just show corporate logos. (laughs) (laughs) And you can show the incredibly inspiring spaces of the geodesic dome in Montreal. And, you know, and people feel this you don't have to say anything. You can just show it. Yeah. I mean, even walking into the big buckyball in Montreal now, you still feel this sense of wonder, like, oh my gosh, this was built? When you see the pavilion in Shanghai, it's just like, it's so bad. It feels like a caricature, except it's actually what happened. <laughs> it's it's unfortunate. And, you know, I do want to say this. The people that I interviewed, they were all really good intentions. You know, in a documentary, you'd never want to be, especially today with fake news, right. you don't really want to be unfair. Um, the worst you could say about things that were constructed was that they really knew nothing about architecture and design and how powerfully form, space, and order could convey a message or convey the wrong message right. in the case of the movie. You're right. It's not any one person's fault. It's kind of like we were set up for failure. It's been systematically going downhill for 25 years. And it's not any particular entity or person. You know, I wanted to be fair in that way. But it was really about making sure that the audience understood the obstacles and how do they get to feel what the poor, the poor girls facing these obstacles. And what are the obstacles that Jack faced? And so you had to figure out a way of conveying this fairly. And and you don't want to blame anybody. So what I ultimately decided to do was I, I had to figure out like, what was my vision as a filmmaker? And my vision, I'm emotional. And this is the part that connects to my mother. Emotion is what connects to people. People all feel things. So, you know, everyone knows Michael Moore's films. So one of the things he's known for is his sarcastic wit. I'm not sarcastic. I wasn't Charles Ferguson either where I was going to do this sort of investigative journalism thing. There was a point in which I was thinking about following the money. Where did all the money go? Sure. But I didn't have the budget for that. That's like a couple million dollars to follow the money. And I only raised 300-something thousand or something like that. So what I did do was I, I went back to square one and I started to figure out, well, who am I? And what kind of movie do I want to tell? And do I want to piss people off? I mean... I want people to get angry, 
but I also want them to feel sad and I wanted them to feel the full range of emotion because the point in doing this movie for me was in some ways to enact like a catharsis for the audience so that the audience starts to feel these emotions themselves so they can start to heal. Mm. And um, so I decided to make the film a love letter, that this was my love letter to America. And so to do that, I needed to be fair. I needed to be balanced. I needed to make sure that people realized how much I cared about America and that this is not something that I was blaming people for, but to recognize that we're all at fault. So um, kind of to stray off topic, um, you mentioned fundraising, you know, $300,000 for this film and that you're very good at fundraising, which I think a lot of architects aren't good at. Can you talk about what those qualities are or how you go about convincing people to give you money? (laughs) (laughs) Everybody wants, filmmakers want to know this too. And You know when you're professors and everybody tells you how important it is to follow your passion? Sure. It's really the truth. That's really (laughs) the case because it really carries through when you're trying to say something. And um, in the making of the film, what I learned, several important rules and points that I learned about fundraising. Number one, you never give up. (laughs) Um, Number two you never know where the money's going to come from. I mean, you might think that you're going to write some grants and you might get lucky. You might actually hit some key points that they're looking for and they might award you some money. But you can't let not getting a grant, not getting the money, stop you from doing what you're doing. Because the money will come if you have the passion to get it done. And sometimes you don't know why you're doing it, but you still have to keep moving closer to the goal. And you might not even know what the goal is, you just keep doing it, you keep going. So I knew that film had a power to speak to people far more strongly than some other methods of expression. So I knew I wanted to learn how to do that. That kept me going. Um, but like a lot of times I started out by thinking that I was, oh, I would research some grants and think, well, this organization should fund us because we're perfectly aligned. It has nothing to do with it because there might be 10 projects that are perfectly aligned and they can only fund one or two. Right. I sometimes think I won some of these grants because I didn't give up and they just wanted me to go away. (laughs) What does that mean? Like you reapplied to a, a grant like three times in a row, let's Some of them say? six times. Okay. okay. Some of them I've applied to eight times and I still haven't gotten. <laughs> and, you know, I might try again for another project. Sure. But it isn't just about applying to grants. So let me explain about that process. You start with what I call the low-hanging fruit. Sure. If somebody tells you about something like, oh my gosh, you should try for this because there are not that many applicants for it, you have a better shot of getting it. Sure. So that's low-hanging fruit. Okay. Another situation, like, you know, even architects, they want to design their own projects and stuff like that. And like, they're hanging out with other architects like, no, don't (laughs) hang out with other architects. Go to that real estate, you know, networking thing. They're going to feed you. They have more money than architects. Oh, yeah. So go hang out with them. They'll give you your first project or something like that. The same with the films. you, You reach out to organizations or people that understand the message. So you have to do a lot of work to figure out what you're trying to say. I'm talking about going out to fundraise 
after you're clear-headed about what you're trying to do. All I knew is I was clear-headed that this is a really important issue. It was bigger than architecture. It was about the American uh, national identity. And it was about something that was much more universal. And so I had to figure out how that could resonate with different funders, different organizations. And if you are constantly working on it, whether you're writing about it, whether you're finding a way of expressing your feeling, that's going to get you closer to being clear in your vision. Then when you go out there, I made a lot of mistakes. I didn't know how to pitch. Like, oh, perfect example. I was with Rory <laughs> Kennedy at an Academy event where they were showing her documentary. And like, and then I started talking to all these really like Academy Award winning directors and producers, and they would tell me about their movies about rape, genocide, or murder. Like my friend Doug Blush was editing The Hunting Ground, and Brian Vogel did Icarus, and they were like, oh my God, it's about Russian doping or like uh, the Olympics from 1960-something. Oh, Mina, so what movie are you doing? <laughs> I used to say it's about a building at a world's fair, which sounds like nothing. Oh, wow. I made a lot of mistakes, and I just kept honing. So um, it's a lot of uh, a lot of really important work that you have to do on yourself. Yeah. I was lucky. I had friends and I had really, really good writers, really good producers that were asking me all the right questions. And like one of the questions they asked me was, why should I watch this movie? Why should I care? You know, if I'm not an architect, how do you get people to care about this? One last question about about the film, and then I want to talk about your background in architecture. What was your hope or desire? Like, what's the goal that the film would bring about? I kept some really modest goals. Okay. <laughs> My goal was to get people to care, whatever that means, right? So the fact that we've just finished our 22nd screening, national screening, I've been traveling all over the country showing the movie because people are finding out about it. Mm -hmm. And hopefully by, you know, finding a way of universally connecting people, then I can get people to care. So I've succeeded in getting more people to care. Another goal that I, I'm really happy about this, one of the goals I had was to get into some film festivals that were not necessarily architecture film festivals. Sure. So I got into two. Great. And we got into one of the top 25 film festivals, the Sonoma International Film Festival. And strangely enough, most of our audiences are not architects. Um, I would say only about 15% of the audience is architects. And the rest of the audience is made up of, you know, a lot of people that are very patriotic or we have a lot of World Fair fanatics we have a lot of diplomacy and international relations people. Um, the topic we cover is about public diplomacy. We're using, so when people say, oh, it's another architecture film, I'm like, no. Mm -hmm. I said, it's a film that uses architecture that covers an important issue about the representation of the American people and how we've dropped the ball. And why I think it's so important is because of this era of fake news and extremism, Every country in the world has a ministry of culture, which is putting out narratives about the values of that country through their culture. And we eliminated our version of a ministry of culture, which was called the United States Information Agency. So just before 
was when the agency that represents the American people to the world got eliminated and whammo, 9-11 happened. And you have to wonder, why is it that they're attacking us because of our symbols of money and war? But this whole notion about eliminating the agency that represents the American people, to me, that's a really important issue that's beyond architecture. Because when you're talking about the era of fake news, extremism, terrorists, um, you also need something to counter that narrative. And that's what we've eliminated. And we've not only eliminated, now we're getting, we're in some ways crippling a lot of the diplomacy initiatives through State Department. And that's why they actually like the movie and the Public Diplomacy Council, U.S. Public Diplomacy Council, actually, they champion the movie. What do you think it would take for our really bad representation at the World Expo to be uh, better? I mean, to, to an acceptable level, you know what I mean? Like, well, there were a lot of challenges because it's been it's been a slow erosion because they started by taking public money away, then they eliminated the agency that represents America to the world, then they started hiring entities, and the entities wanted to help. So everyone that tried to to represent America at the World Fair did the best that they could based off of their knowledge. But what happened was they eliminated the expertise of architecture, and that's how it got to how bad Shanghai was. Oh, the other thing in Shanghai is they didn't hire an American architect right. <laughs> to represent America. <laughs> so, you know, the, it's a slow process, and like anything worth doing, it's going to take several steps. The good news is step one has been taken. They are using an American architect this time. They also used an American architect for um, the Milan World Expo, which we show. But the architect that was involved, poor James Bieber, didn't realize how right. bad the RFP had been set up so that if they didn't raise enough money, he wouldn't get paid. So that was really bad. Ultimately, the goal is to start to get funding again from the United States government. You know, a lot of people don't think that funding will ever be able to happen again. But if you understand the fact that this is more than just about a building, that this is about putting out messages about what American values are, then I think that it becomes much bigger than just, you know, a stupid building at an event that this country doesn't seem to care about anymore. And the other issue that we try to bring forth in the movie is this is one of the most important events for connecting to the people of the world. At the time when they were marketing Shanghai, it was considered the biggest event attended by human beings in Got history. It. 73 million people went. You know, these are really important events about getting people to gather in a real place and see each other face to face. There's a, a term that people misconstrue, but I'll just say it because everybody understands it for this term, the last three feet, which was by Edward R. Murrow's but what he was talking about was the importance of the last three feet for face-to-face -face communication, which cannot be replicated when you're talking about a chat room or a website like Facebook. We're actually on our best behavior when we're in the same room with somebody. Um, and so there are very few events that we can do that. We do want to start to understand each other, which means that we can't think of ourselves as living in our own boxes anymore. Yeah, I think that's a good segue to talk about um, something that you and I have talked about a little bit before, which is what it's like to be an Asian American woman in architecture. So in making this movie, I actually had to define what were American <laughs> values. 
And I actually did a lot of homework to think about, well, what are the American values that my mom and dad seemed to value and what made them want to stay in the United States? Some of those were individual freedom and self-expression because that is unique to America. And if you think about our culture and embracing innovation, in some ways, innovation has thrived because we've allowed individuals to pursue what they believed were important challenges in society and culture. Whereas if you think about that in counterpoint to Confucius values, they stress family and they stress not sticking out in some ways when you don't need to. That might be construed as not letting the individual express himself. So the challenge of being Asian American is I was taught to really value my family over myself. Yet, you know, I've been taught to find myself. And you see the dilemma there. There's a total paradox there. So how do you resolve that? It's a constant balancing act. But I think that it's wrong to assume that every Asian woman has to follow the same path. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think one of the things that I struggled with when I, so I grew up in Hawaii and it's a very mixed place, but it's predominantly Asian, I think. And so I grew up in a culture, not just with my family, but at school or with friends where Um, you don't brag about yourself. That's ugly. Or like, we don't say things in a certain blunt way. Um, So the bragging thing, I think, is actually more than just being a woman and being Asian. Culture, civilization has taught us not to, quote, brag. But for some reason, we've misconstrued that to mean don't even have a voice. And I think that's where we're, as Asian women, we're misunderstanding the message. The example I like to give is like we we try to pass on our best intentions to our children. And sorry, this movie still makes me cry. If you're familiar with the Joy Luck Club, there are a few scenes there. And one of them is about she was taught not to take the biggest crab. Did your mother teach you not to take the biggest crab? <laughs> um, no, no, because I didn't have crab growing up. But, um, but I, yeah, I'm familiar with well, you're concept. supposed to give the best to, to your guests, you know, you, and that's not just a mother thing. It's a host. It's a good host. You, you give the best to the, your guests and mm-hmm. everything. The way that I misunderstood it, which probably made me cry so much, is that I don't deserve the biggest crab. But mm-hmm. that's not necessarily what the message is. Mm-hmm. It just means you want to honor your guest. And I think a lot of Asian women misconstrue the message you need to make sure you take care of yourself. And the way my dad used to tell me, he says, Mina, if you don't take care of yourself, you're not going to be around to take care of anybody else. (laughs) So you have to take care of yourself and you have to spend the time on yourself and you have to speak up. Yeah, the adjustment I had to make was not understanding why people were always underestimating me when I first came to the mainland, because I was clearly capable of doing the things I was doing. And, oh, you know, I was quietly working. Well, they had probably had some stereotypes about you. Maybe. But I think I could, I, you know, I didn't help by not promoting myself as well. Well, I I still have that problem, but I'm getting over it. I used to really take it to heart when people said you're too self-promoting. And now I don't anymore because I've actually talked to some of my friends that are actually 
don't have that problem. And they said, you should be proud of being accused of being too self-promoting because you've gotten over the thing that has been crippling you. It's not about bragging. No, it's about having confidence and being able to just share that, I, th- I think. Yeah. But getting back to the voice thing, finding our own way of finding our voice That is so unique to every person, Mm -hmm. and it requires that they do the hard work. I was lucky because I was taught by this guy that is considered one of the the main advisors on leadership, Warren Bennis. You know, it was weird because before I met him, I thought leadership was this whole thing where you're supposed to be, you know, showing people this or that, and you're supposed to be the figurehead, and you're supposed to be the one in charge, and you're telling everybody what to do. It is the exact opposite. What he showed me, and he didn't tell me this, he showed me by example. He showed me it's about inspiring people. It's so much work, but you have to figure out ways of inspiring them to get excited about the main vision. So it's also about having a vision, seeing who aligns with your vision and working with people that align with your vision, finding the best people knowing that you just happen to be the leader in this situation, but you might not be the leader in another situation. That's amazing. To wrap things up, can you tell us how we can watch your film and find out more? We are still doing screenings all over the country. And if you're lucky enough to be in LA, we have a screening coming up on March 20th at the Helms Bakery. And it's done through Women in Architecture Committee for the Los Angeles chapter of the American Institute of Architects. If you're in Baltimore, actually that screening is first. That one is a free screening um, and it's being uh, sponsored by the University of Maryland, Baltimore County, and that's March 12th on their campus. We'll have all of these listings on our website, which is faceofanationmovie.com. And maybe we'll be able to stream on a streaming network at some point, but I have to set that up. That sounds great. Hopefully you all get to check out the movie because it's fantastic. Thanks, Audrey. Thank you, Mina. (laughs) Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Audrey Sato, and today's guest was Mina Chow. I'll have more information and links in my show notes so you can check out her film. And by the way, are you subscribed to our new email newsletter? If not, visit us online at xx-la.com and sign up. You'll receive information about events like Mina's screening, as well as notifications of new episodes. You can also find me on social media at XXLA Podcast. Thanks for listening.